You know, it is a special thing to look out and see the faces of God's people. It is a humbling thing to preach his word to his people, to his precious saints for whom he died. You all who are here this morning who are believers are the flock of Christ, purchased with his own blood. What a humbling thing it is to do anything that would lead God's people or encourage God's people or challenge God's people. And so I'm thankful for the opportunity this morning to bring instruction from God's word to you all, his precious people. One of the blessings of growing up in church and in a Christian home, which some of you uh, know about as you grew up in a Christian home. My wife uh, did not grow up going to church, and so uh, we kind of have understand both of those dynamics, and some of you are in, in that situation, but some of you also grew up in a Christian home going to church. And one of the great advantages of that, one of the blessings of that is uh, that you memorize a lot of Scripture <clears throat> as a child. And I think this is, even if there's less intentionality in doing that, so even if uh, there, there isn't a Scripture memory program or anything like that that you're following, whether at home or at church, it just kind of happens, uh, especially if, you, if you're in church for a, a while from the time you're little, there are many verses that just get put to memory. <clears throat> and probably the most famous of these memorized verses, I think we would all agree, is John 3.16. Probably at the very top of the list for the scriptures, if you grew up in church, that you can remember knowing by heart before any other. But right up there at the top with John 3.16 is probably also Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so even as I'm saying that, uh, many of you who haven't quoted that verse in a long time are able to even recall it from years and years ago when you last cited it or quoted it. Well, today we come to this verse in its context. And once again, let me just say that's one of the, the joys of doing exposition through the scriptures is that those wonderful, glorious verses in their own right, and I absolutely, they're wonderful in their own right, and valuable to be memorized uh, by themselves. And yet at the same time, how much more uh, exciting is it to see those verses, to acquire those verses, and chew on those verses in their natural context as we see them unfolding in the argument of the biblical author. And so today we come to the context of this very well-known verse. So if you'll go ahead and turn with me to Romans 10, verses 5 to 13. I'm going to try to take on that whole chunk today. It's always challenging to determine how much to take on in a given sermon, uh, but you also want to retain the flow of thought and Hopefully that comes through today as we look at this entire chunk, verses 5 to 13. Since the beginning of chapter 9, we've been looking at the topic of Israel's rejection of Christ. That's the big idea, so we don't want to lose 
the forest for the trees. We don't want to get so uh, down in the weeds with these little little topics that are uh, arising out of these chapters, chapters 9 through 11, that we forget the big idea, the big topic, the big theme that is guiding all that Paul is saying, and that is Israel's rejection of Christ. And this is a topic of grief for the Apostle Paul. He's told us that at the beginning of chapter 9 and at the beginning of chapter 10. This is an issue that is close to his heart. This is an issue that in his humanity pulls on his heartstrings, but also in his worship of the one true God and in his role as the apostle to the Gentiles and as a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, this bothers him on the level of considering God being glorified in the world. He knows that God's purposes are at work, but he nonetheless recognizes that the glory of God is paramount and that the question of Israel's salvation is integrally related to God being glorified in the world. And so he spends his time as he gets into these chapters answering the question, why has this happened? Why has Israel rejected Christ? Why has Israel stumbled? And he gives two big reasons. We've looked at the details of all of this, but he gives two big reasons. The first is God's sovereignty in election. Big idea. And he explains what that looks like and how that's played out in the chapter, in the verses of chapter 9. So that's the first, God's sovereignty in election. And the second reason why this has happened, as Paul describes it, is Israel's responsibility in unbelief and works righteousness. So they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Rather than take hold of Christ as the cornerstone, as the foundation stone, they've stumbled over that stone. And instead of Christ, faith in Christ, they have pursued works righteousness. Being right by keeping, being right with God by keeping the law. And Paul's explanation of Israel's unbelief and self-righteousness begins in chapter 9, verse 30. So we've really been into this minor topic within the larger topic. We've really been into that in the last couple of sermons. So we started that in chapter 9, verse 30. So I want to read a few of those verses just to set up what we're going to look at today. So he says this in verses 31 to 32 of chapter 9. Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, so that's what they're about, largely as a nation, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And the picture, this very same picture, is repeated again at the beginning of chapter 10 in verses 3 and 4. He says this, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So it's a lack of submission. It's a rebellion against God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So that's a little bit of context for what we're looking at today. The contrast is set between doing on the one hand and believing on the other, between works and faith. 
This is the big contrast that Paul is dealing with. And we saw this earlier in his letter to the Romans, those first four chapters. You'll remember that from uh, basically chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, we get this big message that all of humanity is under sin and therefore under condemnation. And the only way, as Paul goes on to say in the passage that we have up on the wall there, verses 21 to 26 of chapter 3, the only way to be made right with God is through faith in Christ. So it is not by works, but it is by faith. And then for an entire chapter, chapter 4, Paul gives the quintessential and foundational illustration of this in the person of Abraham. The father of faith. The contrast between doing in order to be right with God and believing in order to be right with God. Many Gentiles and the chosen remnant of Israel have believed in Paul's day. Many Gentiles from all of these various cities, Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi and Rome, These Gentile peoples, these peoples from all over the world, these Greek-speaking peoples, many of them have believed. And the chosen remnant of Israel has believed. People like Peter and John. And you could go on and on and on. The apostles, all of them, have believed in Christ. And then those Jews who are gathered for Pentecost and then other Jews throughout have put their faith in Christ, the remnant. They have trusted Christ. They have received the free gift of God's righteousness, right standing with God by faith in Christ. But on the other hand, the nation of Israel as a whole, God's special people, the people whom God delivered from slavery in Egypt, the people whom God had constantly come to with his power. He had given them his law. He had given them his presence in the temple. He had given them the sacrificial system. He had given them his truth, his wisdom, his prophets. The nation of Israel as a whole has rejected Christ. Most Israelites or Jews have chosen to pursue right standing with God by their own works, by their own deeds, rather than by faith in Christ. And it is this contrast between doing and believing that Paul unpacks further in our passage for today. That's verses 5 to 13 of chapter 10. Let me go ahead and give you the title for the sermon this morning. It is The Saving Message. So in the process of unpacking this contrast between doing for righteousness and believing for righteousness, Paul presents in such such a clear fashion, he presents the saving message. This is the apostolic message that is being preached by the apostles of Christ. This is Paul's gospel. It is, as he introduces it in the very first verse of Romans, it is the gospel of God. It is the saving message. And we're going to look at two things this morning. I'll go ahead and give you the points. We're going to, as, we, as we unpack this, uh, these verses 5 to 13, we're going to look at two things. First, two voices, and second, one way. Two voices and one way. That's what Paul gives us here 
in these verses. Let me go ahead and get you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to begin in chapter 9, verse 30. The reading of Scripture is the most important thing we can do in worship. Uh, We see from the pastoral epistles, for example, that the public reading of Scripture was so key, so central to the uh, gathering of God's people in the early church. And we even see this uh, in the mid-100s, about a century or more after the apostles. We see this figure, Justin Martyr, who is writing, and he describes that when the Christians are gathered in worship, it's really interesting because he gives us a glimpse into how early Christians, a hundred years after the apostles, worshipped, what they did in their worship services, and he mentions that the scriptures are read, and then someone explains those scriptures. So I want us to read these verses and try to follow with your mind. Don't let your mind stray. I know it's tempting. Uh, Try to follow the logic that we have here as we lead up to our passage. This is God's holy word. Beginning in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. When we read there, Zion, basically that's the people of God, the the place of God, used literally for Jerusalem, but also for the, uh, the people of God. So laying in Zion among God's people, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then our passage for this morning. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What a call that is to to anyone who does not know the Lord. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. What a promise. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will 
be saved. You can go ahead and be seated. It is no surprise that these verses are so frequently cited in evangelistic context. What a call they are to sinners everywhere to look to Christ. Let's go ahead and pray, ask for God's help, and we'll jump into these verses. Father, we are so grateful to be gathered here this morning together as Christians, together as a local church. Father, I pray for those among us who are unconverted, Lord, that you would save them today. What a passage, Lord, to use as a ramming rod, as a spear, as a surgical instrument to get down deep into the hearts of the unsaved. God, we pray that today you would work in the hearts of those who do not know you. Father, as we consider this passage as Christians, we pray that our hearts would be lifted up to that much more look to Christ, to that much more look away from ourselves, to be faithful to you considering how faithful you have been to us. God, thank you for these verses. Thank you for this time that we have together. We pray, Lord, that your people would be built up today as we go through this worship service, Lord, and after, as we finish the service and as Christians are spending time with one another, Lord, that there would be true koinonia, that there would be true fellowship among the people of God, that there would be gospel conversations, that there would be giving thanks and pouring over, uh, just flow, overflowing in our hearts and in our words about what you have done through Christ, and that that would be edifying to our neighbor, edifying to our brother and sister in Christ. Father, help us today to use this time well, not to waste it. It can never be repeated, and so we pray that now we would be here in mind and heart, that we would receive your word with our ears with our minds, and that we would receive it with a ready heart, ready to obey, ready to trust, ready to love and serve. We thank you now. Pray that you would be with us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look this morning at two voices and one way. So first, two voices. A little easier to write down when compared to last week. So for you kids... Uh, This should be quick and easy. Two voices. Look with me at verses five to eight. We're gonna take that chunk on first. So for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. The saving message of the apostles. The apostolic gospel. What Paul gives us here are two voices. And you'll notice that the righteousness based on faith is personified as one who speaks Paul personifies the voice of faith righteousness as opposed to works righteousness or legal righteousness, the righteousness based on faith. Paul is setting up two religious systems, two paths of righteousness attainment. 
And he gives each of them a voice. And so what we're going to do is just look at each of these voices. We have two voices. We're going to look at each of them. So first, we see the voice of legal righteousness. This is the voice of attaining righteousness by law-keeping. And for that, we're just going to look at verse 5. So look again at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now here Paul quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. He quotes Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. A quotation from Moses there in Leviticus. It is not that Moses, let me, get, let me make this very clear. It is not that Moses advocated legal righteousness or works righteousness. Working really hard to obey the law to win God's acceptance. It is not that Moses advocated that. We know that this is not the case because of what Moses wrote in Genesis 15, 6 about Abraham. Remember, Moses wrote all the first five books of the Bible. And in Genesis 15, 6, when describing the righteousness that was reckoned to Abraham, he says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And Paul gives an exposition of Moses' meaning in Romans chapter 4. So we know that Moses is not himself a legalist. Moses is not, does not himself understand that you work your way to God's acceptance. Moses, like Abraham, would have believed the Lord and it would have been reckoned to him as righteousness. So let me just make that clear. Instead, what Paul is doing is using Leviticus 18 verse 5 to lay out the nature of legal righteousness. He quotes Leviticus 18.5 to explain what legal righteousness is. This is one voice, the voice of legal righteousness. In doing the law, there is life. That's the message. In doing the law, there is life. If one does the law, the whole law Keep in mind the commandments, the statutes, the rules, all of them are conceived as a unity. The whole law. If one does the law, the whole law, he or she will live. And be assured, if one does the whole law, he or she will live. He or she will live. If done, then one. If the law is done, then righteousness is one. We attain that righteousness if the law is kept. The problem, of course, is that no one can reach life by the law because no one does the law. No one. Let me give you just a couple of verses from earlier in Romans just to make this clear. Paul's already dealt with this, and we're seeing a lot of these themes be repeated, but he's already dealt with this in those first four chapters, and then particularly in chapter 7. So let me give you a couple of quotes just to make clear that no one does the law. Chapter 3, verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law comes along, and what does it do? 
It reveals sin. It brings the knowledge of sin to the heart. The law is a convicting force among fallen man. The law is a convicting force among those who are in Adam. And then chapter 7, verses 8 to 10. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So this is what sin does. The commandment comes along and, and sin actually grabs hold of the commandment and uses it for its own purposes. It says that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life, and that is it promises if you keep it, you will live, as we just read. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So what we're told already, uh, this is just rehashing material we've already covered, but what we're told is that the law reveals sin and it actually entices sin, it activates sin, it stimulates sin and mixes it up in us, stirs up sin. It has that effect, not because there is anything unrighteous or wrong in the law, but because of who we are in Adam. That is what the law does. So the law promises life, yes, if it is done, but it brings only death if it is not done. Paul says this in Galatians 3, verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by. Listen to what he says. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So, the voice of legal righteousness says, Do these things and attain life. And to listen to that voice is to fail to understand that even your very best efforts on your very best days fall far short of keeping God's holy law. Let me say this to you. This is something maybe that you haven't considered. One of Satan's most effective tools is morality. Now that this sounds a little bit strange when we say that. We think there is morality and there is immorality. And of course we would say that Satan is the author of immorality, that Satan entices to immorality. We think specifically of sexual immorality, which is mentioned many times in the New Testament. By the way, the Bible does not whisper about sexual immorality. The Bible's very loud about sexual immorality. It's all the way back to the beginning with Lamech and Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's daughters. And we could go on and on and on. But one of Satan's most effective tools is not so much Immorality, though he loves to entice to all kinds of licentiousness and immorality, but he also loves to entice towards morality. And the reason is this. Remember, Satan is, he, he masquerades as an angel of light. 
he makes himself appear uh, in, in a way that you don't see that Satan is behind it. Satan loves to be crafty and subtle and quiet. And we've been accustomed to think of Satan, his work in these very outlandish ways, you know, these exorcist type ways where people have to be cutting themselves and climbing walls or whatever kind of weirdness we associate from these horror movies about demonic possession. But one of Satan's most effective tools is to work into the heart of a person this notion that they are good and moral and doing right. And so Satan is quite happy for you to obey the rules. He's quite happy for you to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and avoid all of those pitfalls of immorality as long as you moralistically bring yourself right into destruction. He loves to work that into the heart, convincing us that we're doing quite well. Satan loves self-righteousness. And that's what you would have found among many of the Jews in Paul's day. They were convinced that they were doing quite well. They were a special people. Of course they would not go to hell. Of course they would make it. They were Abraham's offspring and they had the law. And they were doing these various works. So that's the first voice of these two voices. The voice of legal righteousness. The second voice is the voice of faith righteousness. The voice of justification by faith alone. The voice of the gospel. The voice of the apostolic preaching. Notice here in verse 6 that the emphasis shifts. The voice of legal righteousness centers on self and doing. We look inward at our own works and find solace in them. To use Paul's language in Galatians 3.10, we rely on our works. The focus of legal righteousness is very much on self and on relying on our own deeds. But the voice of justification by faith centers on Christ and what he has done. Notice how uh, he moves out of verse 5 and he begins to speak of what Christ has done. So John Stott gives a helpful summary of what Paul is saying in verses 6 to 8. He says this, There is no need whatever for us to scale the heights or plumb the depths in search of Christ. For he has already come, died, and risen, and so is accessible to us. Jesus himself has done the work. Jesus has done the work For us, he is near to us, he is accessible to us. We need not climb or dig our way to righteousness. The way has been made for us. This is the voice of justification by faith. Here in verses six to seven, Paul uses Moses' words again. But this time, from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 to 13. And if you look at Paul's quotations of these verses, it's somewhat confusing because he speaks in, in one way, Leviticus 18 has to do with this legal righteousness, but then he refers to the law in Deuteronomy 30, and Paul picks this up and says that it is speaking of the gospel. So what is going on? Well, in the context, Moses is envisioning an end times picture of restoration. 
after the curses have fallen on Israel, and he uses new covenant language. So if you read the first 10 verses of Deuteronomy 30, you get this new covenant picture. And it seems that what Paul is doing is he is taking this passage which has a new covenant context where Moses is looking down into the future and he's seeing the inbreaking of these new covenant realities, the spirit circumcising the heart. And Paul is applying this to the gospel message, the saving message of faith in Christ. So let me just sum up two voices. Work your way and live, fail and die. That's the first voice. The second voice, look to the accessible Christ who has accomplished everything on your behalf and whom you must now only receive upon your lips and your heart. That brings us to our second point, one way. There are two voices, there is but one way. Look with me at verses 9 to 13. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why is the word of faith that Paul proclaims, this saving message, why is it said to be near us, in our mouth and in our heart, Well, Paul answers that question beginning with the word because in verse 9. That's where he begins to explain why he says in those preceding verses that it is near us. It's in our mouth and in our heart. And in these verses, Paul lays out the one way of salvation. There are two voices, but only one of them is worth hearing. There are two ways to live, but only one of them leads to life. You know, I can remember in college years ago, I guess now it's been about 20 years, I remember hearing Phil Donahue interview Jerry Falwell Sr. And it was really interesting to see the dynamic because Phil Donahue and the entire people gathered on his show were just ridiculing and mocking and laughing at Jerry Falwell Sr. And it was just this really sad picture of lostness. And I was just so encouraged by Falwell's just, uh, he was jolly and he wasn't uh, angry with these people, but he was just so determined to proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ is the only way. And Phil Donahue just could not stand to hear this. I mean, he was, how, how much bigotry there is. I mean, this your way is the only way. All these people in the world and all these people of other religions and your way is the only way? And of course, Jerry Falwell tried to explain why that is the case, why it is that 
Christianity is exclusive. We preach an exclusive message because we know something to be true. And that is that any other way leads to death. When Christians go to their friends and their family and their neighbors and and we say to you or we say to anyone, Jesus is the only way. It is because we truly love you. We truly believe that every other way spills out into eternal death. Not just temporal death, not just dissatisfaction and lostness, meaninglessness in this life, this temporal life, but we really do believe that when a person dies without Christ, they die and are eternally separated from God in hell. As Jesus says in the parable, the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell in great torment. Every other way, no matter how moral it may be, Seem, no matter how Gandhi esque it may seem, it leads to death. There is only one way of life, there is only one voice worth hearing, and it is this voice of salvation through Christ by grace through faith. There are several things that we see here about this one way. And that's where we're going to close this morning. We're going to look at this one way as it is, as it is described in verses 9 to 13. There are several things that we see about this one way. So here they are if you want to write them down. It is the way of salvation, the way of certainty, the way for all, and the way of treasures. It is the way of salvation, the way of certainty, the way for all and the way of treasures. This is the apostolic message, the saving message. This is the one way, the one voice we must heed. So first, it is the way of salvation. I have entitled the sermon, The Saving Message, because that is how Paul understands the message of justification by faith. It is the saving message. Message. It brings salvation for human beings. I was talking with our kids last night in family worship about the good news and, and how many things we would say are good news. Uh, we can look in the news today and we, we see uh, this little thing that's happened, this little discovery that's been made, this new achievement in medical research or whatever else. And we can say, that's good news or something happens to us. Maybe you, your, your boss comes to you at work on a Friday and, and uh, says you, you're getting a promotion and it's going to be a big promotion. And you drive home and you're excited about telling your spouse and your kids, hey, I've got some good news for you. All of those little newses are nothing in comparison to the eternal saving message of Christ. It is the good news, this saving message. And we saw this emphasis on salvation back in chapter 1, verse 16. Remember, as Paul lays out the theme for Romans, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for what? It is the power of God for salvation. Paul believes that in the preaching of the gospel, the power of God to save people eternally is unleashed. I was recently listening to an Ask Pastor John episode, and it, it just struck me. Of course, you know these things, but I love the way that he gets so incisively into these issues. And he was talking about, he was answering a question about suffering, and he was saying, look, coming to Christ may bring more suffering in this life. It will bring more suffering in this life, but how tiny, how absolutely infinitesimally tiny is that suffering in this life compared to the fact that we are rescued from eternal suffering in hell? That's what Christ does for us. He saves us from an eternity of suffering. What light and momentary afflictions we have in this life, no matter what they may be, when we consider the eternal weight of glory. When we are saved, we are saved to be forever happy with God through Christ. This is the salvation, salvation from hell, salvation unto knowledge of God. This is the message that Paul preaches. This one way is the way of salvation. And Paul refers to this idea of being saved multiple times in this passage, verses 9, 10, and 13. And beginning in verse 9, we read those famous words, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And as I said, we get it repeated over and over again. This is why the word is near. Rather than work for it, we receive it. We put our trust in the crucified, raised Christ. We trust that Christ was literally raised from the dead. You know, being in an academic environment, it's very interesting some of the ways that these scholars will twist all kinds of texts. I mean, it's, it's amazing the way that they will just reinvent Christian theology and create this sort of this liberal theology and, and the, what, what they do with the resurrection, uh, the, the, the way that they, they make the resurrection not a literal, physical resurrection in space and time. I can remember in Scotland when Jennifer and I went to visit uh, a church, it's St. Giles Cathedrals. Maybe some of you have been to Edinburgh, have, have been in that church. We went to a service there. It was terrible. It was terrible. Beautiful church. I mean, absolutely beautiful architecture. John Knox preached in that church. What a historical site. We had to go to service there once, but only once, because it was so bad. Within the first five minutes of the sermon, the preacher began explaining away the literal bodily resurrection of Christ. On the Lord's Day, in a so-called Christian church. No, we believe that Jesus Christ was literally, bodily, physically, in space and time, raised from the dead, and that he did this for me. As a Christian, I say Christ was raised. Yes, fact, literal fact. He did this for me. It has bearing and meaning and eternal significance for me. 
when we were in the, the middle school, uh, one of the, East, well, the Easter Sunday that we were there, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. And I talked about how the resurrection uh, is, the gospel with the resurrection at the center is both historical and personal. We have to look back on something that actually happened. There is, it is necessary that we look back to these events and say, it happened. It happened. In fact, the apostles were to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. That was part of what it meant to be an apostle, is that they actually saw the raised Jesus We must trust in this historical occurrence of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. But it is not just historical, something to be mentally affirmed, something to look back and say, yes, Caesar was assassinated. Yes, Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. It's not something just for a history book. This is something that is personal. It is historical And it is personal. We trust in this raised Christ who now lives on our behalf. Who now has passed through the heavens as man. God, man. And who stands before the throne of God. Before the Father in our place as humanity. And in him we are redeemed humanity. We believe in our hearts that this is true. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Have you come to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The hope that Peter talks about in his first epistle, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? If you're asking yourself, am I a Christian? That must be at the beginning of your answer. I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And I confess this truth that Christ is the resurrected and exalted Lord of all. Confess it with our mouths. Confess it with our lips. Confession in the mouth is the fruit of belief in the heart. If it is real in the heart, it will be confessed with the mouth. It's the reason why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on to say, everyone who denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. Are you ashamed of Christ? Do you love the glory of men more than the glory of God? Do you love that people look at you and pat you on the back and praise you and think high of you than you do of eternal glories in Christ? Do you think so little of Christ that you would be quiet about him, that you would even in practice deny him among men. The glory and praise of men. What a tempting force that is in our lives. How often our mouths remain shut when they should be open. And they go open when they should be shut. Because 
of our shame and our love of the praise of man. Confess him from the mountaintop. Let his light shine as a city on a hill. To confess Jesus as Lord is to confess the reality of his resurrection. Uh, These are not really two things. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Those are not really two things because in the New Testament, the the belief in Jesus' resurrection is associated with trust in his lordship. He was raised as the Lord of all. Read Philippians 2, 1 through 11. He's been given a name above all. He is the resurrected Lord. And we confess him as the raised and exalted Lord. But we also confess him as God. Part of what it means to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is to confess that he is in fact Yahweh. He is in fact God with us. He is God enfleshed. He is incarnate deity. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the word of God through whom all things were made. Remember the word was God. The word was with God. The word was God. He is God. And so when we confess Jesus as Lord, we confess that he is the very God of Israel who has become man in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And when we do that, we are saved. That's what the text says. This one way is the way of salvation. Secondly, it is the way of certainty. Look at the language of assurance and certainty in verses 11 and 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, I love these verses, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then let's fast forward a little bit to verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, there's much talk about claiming the promises of God. Sometimes this talk is healthier than others. But man, what a promise this is to us. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're struggling with assurance of your salvation, come back here. Come back to this place. You know, for me, ground zero is, is uh, as you've heard me quote it many times, uh, Romans 3, 25. For God put him forward as a propitiation for our sins to be received by faith. Go back to Christ. There he is, the propitiation for our sins. Just as those offerings were brought into the temple and tabernacle, God saw those and he passed over sin. Just as sure as the people of God with the blood over their door in readiness to leave Egypt were certain that God would pass over, so too through Christ as the propitiation for our sins, his blood covering us, God's wrath will pass over us. Without doubt, it is absolutely certain. Go there and go here. Go to these verses. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a promise from the living God. Go here, pray to God that he would give you eyes to see, that he would give you a heart to accept 
that he would cast out fear and that he would replace that with a confidence in the truth of his word. What are you waiting on God to do in your life that you would be assured of your salvation? Look to the promises of his word. You need no receipt if he has given you his Holy Spirit as a seal and guarantee. You need no receipt when he has given you the promises of his word. What was Jacob doing all those years when they were stuck down in famine? And Joseph was gone and and Jacob was left thinking Joseph had been killed and then other sons leaving and going. Jacob, no word from the Lord during that entire time. What was he to trust in? The word of the living God. The promises of the living God. This way is certain because it is without shame. We will not be put to shame. And it is with promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it is the way of salvation. It is the way of certainty. Thirdly, it is the way for all. For everyone who believes, whether Jew or Greek, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, no one is excluded. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, there's nothing unique about you in this regard. We live in a culture where there's a a lot of emphasis on individual expression and individual uniqueness and you know, the, the self-esteem culture, it's been charging along for a long time. We're all so unique and so special and so forth. And there's truth to that, of course. Uh, we're all made uh, intentionally in God's image. Each of us governed by his providence. And each of us who is a believer has been specifically and uniquely elected by God for eternal glory. So yes, but in this regard, there is nothing unique about you. Everyone, guess what? You fall under that category. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever you are, the message of Christ is held out to you. It is held out to you once again by God's grace this morning. It is held out to you to be received by faith, to believe in your heart, That God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Son of God, as John says. That he died in the place of sinners on the cross. He bore the curse on the tree in our place. He was buried and on the third day he rose again in power. He has brought new creation in with his resurrection. He has ascended into heaven and he's coming back one day to raise those who trust in him. Put your trust in this Christ and confess him with your mouth. It is for all. You know, this really does fuel evangelism and missions, doesn't it? We take this message to all peoples. There's not a single person whom we could ever meet that falls outside of the scope of this gospel call. Now we know. That God's effectual call is only for the elect. 
Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those who be predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is God's effectual call unto salvation in the secret counsels of God worked out in space and time in those who will believe. But the call of the gospel goes out to all people everywhere. There's not a person you've ever met or ever will meet for whom this message is not relevant. Immediately relevant. Bring this message to people. Bring this message to dying sinners who are literally on their way to eternal torment and separation from the king. Bring this message, Christian, for you are an ambassador of the king, not your own person. When you became a Christian, you died to yourself. You were bought with a price. You no longer live for yourself. You belong to the king. You are his ambassador in the world to bring this message of reconciliation, pleading with people, be reconciled to God. How lazy we are in bringing this message to dying sinners. How apathetic we are. How distracted we are with trivialities and our pleasures our luxuries, our comforts, our families, our jobs, our vacations, whatever. This is the message that we were saved to propagate in this world. God has saved us to be instruments of his voice in the world. Be reconciled to God. Finally, we see that it is the way of treasures. It is the way of salvation. It is the way of certainty. It is the way for all. And now we see that it is the way of treasures. We'll finish here this morning. Notice the language Paul uses in verse 12. He says, The same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. We think a lot of things are riches, but we die with nothing. We leave this world with nothing. Christ gives true riches. The wise man stores up treasure for himself in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal, but the foolish man stores up treasures on earth, things he can touch and see and smell and taste. Oh, how lovely and enjoyable. The wise man believes that there are untold, unfathomable riches in Jesus Christ. And that to find him is to find the treasure. To find him is to find the pearl of great price. To find him is to find everything such that everything else is as nothing. It is as dung. It is as dust under our feet. Riches. Treasures for all who call on him. God's storehouse of heavenly riches in Christ never runs dry. God is never empty in his pocket. 
His pocket is never empty. He never looks in his storehouse of treasures and goes, well, there's none left. Treasures, bliss forevermore as we enjoy the infinite God who has infinitely blessed us in his Son. He is rich to all who look to Christ. Why would you continue one more second outside of Jesus Christ? Why would you continue one more second living for yourself when day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year and decade after decade will end in nothing but death? This life is fleeting. It is a breath. It is a mist. It is a fading flower. And even if you're six or seven, soon, even if you live to be old, soon your life will come to an end. Will you have lived it for this life or for the life to come? Do not be a fool left in the cold outside of Christ, bearing the wrath of God forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Jesus is Lord. We thank you that he is the God-man. He is both God and man. That he came to save us, as Philippians 2 so eloquently describes. Father, we thank you that he was raised from the dead on the third day as the Lord of all, and all has been entrusted to him. He is the judge. He is the sovereign ruler, far above all rulers and authorities and powers and dominion. They are under his feet. God, we bow to King Jesus this morning. We praise you that We do not have to reach up to heaven or go down to the abyss. We don't have to dig a hole and continue to the center of the earth or get in a space shuttle and go as high as we can out into space or travel through realms unknown. We don't have to do this. It is near us. It is accessible. It is in our hearts and in our mouths. Confess Christ and believe that he is raised from the dead and we will be saved, not by our works, but by faith in the work of Christ. Thank you for these words, God. We pray that they would have their effect on us through the Spirit, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, for this time to worship you through the Lord's Supper. We ask that you would guide what we do here, that it would be guided by faith, that, Lord, that we would believe in Jesus as we participate in this Lord's Supper, that we would confess our sins, that we would meditate on the truth that he died, was buried, and he rose again, that we would remember him and commune with him as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Would you be with us now? In Jesus' name, amen.